time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, January the 31st, 2024. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, yesterday's circuit court ruling upholds the state's right to regulate animal waste management on large farms. Dane County has the results of a years-long study analyzing if an algorithm can change the county's justice system. And in the second half, a post-state-of-the-state interview with Governor Tony Evers, some headlines from the 1960s, and the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you, bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Republican state lawmakers have introduced a proposal to limit the power of the governor's partial veto. The proposal comes not in the form of a, pill, but, of a bill, but as a proposed constitutional amendment. To pass, it would need to pass the state legislature this session and next session, and then be approved by a majority of voters. The constitutional amendment would limit the use of a partial veto if it resulted in increasing fees or taxes in appropriation bills. It's spurred by the governor's partial veto in the budget, which resulted in maintaining school funding for the next 400 years. The power of a Wisconsin governor to use a partial veto is unique in the nation. What can be done to revive or sustain the newspaper industry and other local journalism? Democrats in the State House have proposed three bills that might give some needed financial support. One would establish fellowships to pay people to work in local newsrooms. A panel of working journalists and journalism professors from the University of Wisconsin would select the fellows for the $40,000 a year service. A second bill would provide a $250 tax break to residents who subscribe to a local news outlet. A third bill would establish a consortium uh, with the UW system to give grants for local journalism projects. That's according to the Capital Times. A bill in the state legislature would honor members of the Ho-Chunk Nation who served as code talkers during World War II. The proposal would rename Interstate 90 in La Crosse County and Monroe County as the Ho-Chunk World War II Code Talkers Memorial Highway. More than a dozen members of the nation served as code talkers during the war, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The bill was approved by the state Senate earlier this month. A corollary bill in the assembly has yet to make it out of committee. An inmate at a maximum security prison in Waupun who died by suicide last summer wasn't regularly given medication to manage his mental health in the months prior to his death. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports that according to records given to his family, staff at Waupun Correctional Institution failed to give the prisoner, Dean Hoffman, daily medication to manage bipolar disorder and depression more than half the days he was incarcerated. Records show that his scheduled psychiatric evaluation was canceled shortly before his death due to the prison being on lockdown. Hoffman's was the first death since the facility went on lockdown last year. Two other people incarcerated there died in October. You might not be able to use cash when Madison's bus rapid transit buses launch. 
Instead, BRT riders might use an account-based fare system developed by London-based tech company Masabi. Under the new system, passengers would get a fast fare card. The account for the card could be reloaded, reloaded online at a retailer or at a kiosk at a bus rapid transit system. Cash can still be used to purchase single ride tickets or day passes at a kiosk at a BRT stop, but it can't be used to directly pay your fare. The change won't increase the standard $2 fare or otherwise alter existing discounts for some people. Because there's no increase in price, city officials say, there's no requirement to hold a public hearing on the change. A presentation on the new system is headed to the Transportation Commission tonight. The meeting started at 5 p.m. and you can watch it online at the City of Madison's City Channel site. Those were the headlines and now on to the rest of today's top stories. A Calumet County judge has upheld the right of government to impose requirements on how factory farms handle their waste. The ruling helps protect the safety of drinking water across the state. Our producer Faye Parks has the story. Yesterday's ruling affirmed the state's right to regulate concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. CAFOs are large-scale farms and defined under state law as having 1,000 or more animal units, or over 715 dairy cows in one place. Wisconsin has hundreds of these massive farms, and they can generate a lot of manure. According to the Wisconsin Environmental Health Network, a dairy farm of 500 cows can produce as much waste as South Milwaukee. Unlike a city, there's less infrastructure to handle where that manure goes. It can seep into rivers and streams, along with groundwater, and contaminate drinking water. That's why the state requires that CAFOs obtain a waste discharge permit from the state's Department of Natural Resources. To get a permit, CAFOs have to agree to certain conditions to keep people from getting sick. Farmers have to monitor groundwater pollution, have a plan for managing manure, and limit their livestock population. Evan Feinauer is a staff attorney with environmental nonprofit group Clean Wisconsin. He says the key part of the permit deals with how to properly store and spread manure. Just to make sure we're doing common sense things to minimize exposure. Manure from CAFOs isn't just poop. It can contain dozens of chemicals that negatively impact human health, from ammonia and nitrates to growth hormones to antibiotics. It can include animal blood, copper sulfate, and other harmful chemicals, according to a report from the National Association of Local Boards of Health. Tony Wilkin Gibbart is the executive director of Midwest Environmental Advocates. He says the regulations protect water quality and stave off illness. CAFOs can generate as much waste as a small city. Often that waste is stored in large pits called manure lagoons, and it is spread untreated on surrounding agricultural fields. Those DNR regulations on manure pollution were what lobbyists for large agribusiness set out to challenge in court. The lawsuit was filed last summer in Calumet County in eastern Wisconsin, home to seven CAFOs as of 2023. Next door, the counties of Brown, Kiwani, and Manitowoc have the tightest concentration of CAFOs in the state, with one to two dozen of the large farms each. In the lawsuit, Lawyers for Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce challenged the state's requirement that all CAFOs have a discharge permit. The lawyers, representing Wisconsin Dairy Alliance Incorporated, 
and Venture Dairy Cooperative argued that obtaining the permits is costly, time-consuming, and redundant. Instead, they said, CAFOs should only have to get a permit if water pollution can be demonstrated in a particular location. Meanwhile, the DNR maintained the importance of the permits for protecting public and environmental health. Both Clean Wisconsin and Midwest environmental advocates filed in the case too. They sided with the DNR, arguing that the permits are perfectly legal under state law and have been in place for decades. Wilkin Gibbart of Midwest Environmental Advocates says they filed in the case to represent the interests of the Wisconsin Farmers Union, a coalition of small farms that has consistently pushed for more environmental safeguards. Common sense environmental protections are not in any way anti-farmer or anti-agriculture. Smart environmental policies are in fact necessary to protect the health of rural Wisconsinites and farmers across the state. Yesterday's decision by Calumet County Judge Carrie Reed affirmed the DNR's right to regulate CAFOs and says Clean Wisconsin's Fine Hour, who was one of the attorneys on the case, that decision was unusually quick. Often what occurs in a complicated case is the judge will say, you know, thank you for the briefs. You've all done a wonderful job. I'm going to take some time to mull things over and you'll get a decision from me at some point in the future. And instead, he just right there had apparently heard enough from the parties and went ahead and denied these groups' requests to have these administrative rules invalidated. According to DNR data, as of mid-2023, there are 336 active discharge permits for CAFOs in Wisconsin. Over the past three decades, the number of CAFOs in Wisconsin has grown tenfold, reports investigative news outlet Wisconsin Watch. That's as the number of small dairy farms is on a precipitous decline. Challenges to the DNR's authority to regulate the changing agricultural landscape is nothing new. Two years ago, the state Supreme Court affirmed the DNR's right to require stricter regulations for pollution generated by CAFOs. And even as lawyers learned of Judge Reed's decision in Calumet County yesterday, Republican lawmakers are advancing a bill here in Madison that would restrict local regulation of farms and CAFOs. Supporters say that barring local governments from imposing regulations would keep farms competitive in the marketplace. But detractors say the bill could allow farms to run roughshod over environmental and animal welfare safeguards. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. For the past seven years, Dane County judges have used an algorithm to help determine whether someone should be released while awaiting trial. The public safety assessment was developed by a philanthropic group called Arnold Ventures. It's used in some other counties across Wisconsin and used by all judges in Kentucky, Utah, and New Jersey. For the past few years, researchers at Harvard Law School have been tracking how well that algorithm works. The results of the study are out and were recently presented to the Dane County Community Justice Council. Dr. James Greiner was in charge of that study as faculty director of Harvard's Access to Justice Lab. Earlier today, he told WORT news producer Faye Parks how the risk assessment tool impacted outcomes in Dane County courts. Thank you for joining me, Jim. Uh, pleasure to be here. So before we get into the details, when did you begin this study and what were its main objectives? Planning for the study began in 2015, and it took us a couple of years to do the full planning. The study launched in, I believe, if I have this right, the middle of 2017, and that's when we began to do the randomization process that the study, that was the backbone of the study. And we've been working
working on it ever since. The objectives of the study were to see whether the adoption of a risk assessment instrument into Dane County's pre-trial criminal justice process would improve its criminal justice outcomes. In particular, it would reduce failure to appear in criminal cases, would reduce new criminal activity, especially new violent uh, criminal activity, whether it would reduce the number of days that people awaiting trial spent incarcerated, and whether it would affect measures of racial fairness. Now, can you tell me more about this data tool? What sort of information did it track, and how was it implemented in Dane County? It's called a risk assessment instrument. The specific name of this risk assessment instrument is the the PSA-DMF. So the PSA stands for Public Safety Assessment. The DMF stands for Decision-Making Framework. What it does is it takes as inputs criminal history information, especially things like the number of prior failures to appear and when those failures to appear occurred, and a number, you know, uh, certain uh, information about past convictions, if any, as well as one piece of demographic information, and that is the defendant's age. And then it uses that information to calculate a set of scores that purport to classify an individual based on how risky they would be if released pre-trial, while awaiting trial. And by riskiness, I mean risk of failure to appear, risk of being rearrested for an offense that could, that could result in incarceration during the pre-trial period, and risk of being rearrested for a violent offense. It produces a score that purports to classify or band people on riskiness of those three things having uh, occurring. So it sounds like it's mostly providing a recommendation. Does that mean that it's still ultimately humans making the call? It's 100% still humans making the call. It does produce a recommendation along with, uh, there's, there are other things that go into the recommendation, more uh, county-specific things. So those scores are part of the inputs that then go into another little, cal- little system that calculates a recommendation. And it is, as you say, 100% a recommendation. The commissioner, as it's called in Dane County, the officials call it commissioner, retains full decision-making authority. And so ultimately, what were your findings? Ultimately, our findings were that the incorporation of the risk assessment instrument, the algorithm, neither produced the positive changes that that many had hoped for, nor produced the negative effects that many feared. It really changed very, very little. So there, again, the primary things that that uh, it was supposed to try to affect in a positive way were failure to appear, uh, new criminal activity, especially new violent criminal activity, number of days of predisposition, incarceration, and racial fairness measures. And ultimately, when we compared the group of cases for which the algorithm was available to the group of cases for which the algorithm was not available, there were no differences, no statistically significant differences between the two. And so it looked as though basically that the availability of the algorithm classifications and, its, and those recommendations that you mentioned did not affect those outcomes that we had hoped it would affect, but it also, in a positive way, it also didn't affect them in the negative way that some people thought that, that uh, it would. From that, uh, what would you say you've learned from studying the tool? I think a couple of big picture things. One is that you should not prejudge ahead of time what's going to happen when you put a new tool or system into the criminal justice system. You need to test it. There were many people who were convinced that algorithms were going to really worsen racial biases and cause all sorts of racial distortions. That did not happen. 
there were many people who were convinced that incorporation of algorithms was going to by itself rationalize the criminal justice system and take out human misjudgments. That didn't happen either. You have to test it. You can't know ahead of time what's going to happen. The second thing is that it is important to maintain that inquiring and reform-minded attitude and not be too torn up if some things that you try don't work out. Dane County has implemented a variety of criminal justice reforms. This is one of them. Some of those criminal justice reforms, I think, were extremely positive. And I think it would be hard, anyone would be hard-pressed to deny that they were extremely positive. You have to maintain your attitude and your optimism to try out different things and, again, assess whether they're working. I guess a third thing I think we learned was that we learned some things about the classification in this algorithm and the bail system as a whole. We think, we don't know for sure because we're waiting on the results of a couple of other studies that we're doing that are similar to those that we did in Dane County, but we think we know that this particular risk assessment instrument does not classify risk terribly strongly, at least not in some circumstances. Um, and therefore that it's not clear how much of a positive effect it could have. We also think that we are beginning to find out, and again, this is not definitive yet, it's not final, but we, that we think we are beginning to find out that bail itself has very little deterrence value. In other words, bail itself doesn't tend to reduce people's uh, failure to appear or new criminal activity or new violent criminal activity rates. That's on a whole, uh, as a whole, across a whole set of cases, thousands of cases. There might be individual cases in which bail would be useful, but as a whole across thousands of cases, it doesn't look like, and again, this is to be verified, it doesn't look like bail has that much effect. So based on your findings, what are your recommendations for Dane County's criminal justice system moving forward? So we're, we're, we're uh, skeptical that we're in the right place to make recommendations. We're scientists. We want to report facts and let people draw policy-based conclusions on their own. Um, we, we did uh, suggest a couple of things for the county to consider, uh, depending again on whether these findings uh, are the same in the other locations where we have the same studies. So we recommended that the county, you know, await, maybe wait a little bit to see if, if in, the, in maybe six or eight months to see if these other findings come out the same. If they do, then our thoughts are, number one, um, to perhaps uh, reexamine the money that is currently be ex- being expended to produce this risk assessment instrument. Um, it may be that that money could be uh, more fruitfully redeployed to something else. Second is to uh, consider evaluating other things that the county is doing that cost money uh, in its pretrial processes to see if they are effective, since it was everyone hoped that, the, or lots of people hoped that this would be effective, and it wasn't. It wasn't harmful either, but it wasn't, it wasn't as effective as we'd hoped. Uh, And number three, to begin to to take a look at the bail processes themselves, since if it turns out that bail does not deter people from from, uh, failing to appear or from committing new criminal activity, it may be that the county could consider uh, it, uh, reconsider its use of of bail. That said, the last recommendation in particular, uh, there's only so much flexibility the county has because state law severely constrains what the county can do. Uh, and the commissioners uh, are ob- and the judges that follow them in the cases are obligated to to follow state law. Um, and so those were the thoughts that we shared. I wouldn't I'm not so sure I'd call them recommendations because against we're sci- we're scientists. We want to report facts and let people draw policy conclusions, but those are thoughts that we had to share with the county. 
Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, just that I think Dane County is lucky to have a set of people um, that are in, in the criminal justice uh, system that are interested in evidence-based reform um, uh, and are interested in trying something out um, and assessing whether it works as opposed to putting it in place, thinking either that it does or you know, just to prove that it won't. Uh, in other words, they don't. The the folks that are in charge in Dane County do not prejudge uh, reforms. They they implement them and they take a hard look. That is quite rare in the United States, um, and it's a privilege to work in in the county. But I, uh, and it's I, I think it, that this attitude of evidence based thinking is refreshing and important to try to uh, to spread to other jurisdictions. It's already in place in Dane County. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Dr. Greiner. Happy to do it, and please let me know if I can be helpful in the future. That was Dr. James Greiner of Harvard's Access to Justice Lab. Last Thursday, Dr. Greiner and Dane County officials discussed the results of a years-long study, which found that using a risk assessment algorithm to inform pretrial decisions had no discernible effect on the areas studied, from reducing crime to addressing racial disparities in the county's criminal justice system. now, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Last Friday, WORT's Andy Moore spoke with Governor Tony Evers, just days after his annual State of the State address. Moore asked the governor about a wide range of topics, from taxes to legislative maps to child care. Here is part of that conversation. Governor Tony Evers joins us now by phone on his way to Milwaukee. Good morning, Governor Evers, and welcome to the Friday Pause. Good morning, Andy. How are you today? I'm just fine. Thank you for making time for uh, WRT listeners on, uh, at the end of such a busy week. That's right. No problem. I, I bet Tuesday night, in some ways, feels like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, how did you know? No, it, it, uh, it's uh, it's always good to have an opportunity to talk uh, talk with the legislators. So, well, it's a good evening, but uh, uh-huh. uh, we're moving on. Well, 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 let's go there though and unpack some some of what happened. I'll start out with a little bit of a nutty question. I just mentioned the opposition perched right behind you during the speech. You're lobbing some grenades their way during the speech, and it's not like you're addressing the opposing party half a football field away in the assembly chambers. Speaker Voss sits directly behind you like three feet. I, I, I just know people watching the State of the State on TV wonder this. What's it like having the other party <laughs> breathing down your neck for 50 minutes? You block it out. <laughs> you just block it out. <laughs> you, you, I, go, I go into those events knowing full well that there will be sometimes when they uh, are looking passive and sometimes when they're looking angry and uh, mm-hmm. but just have to block it out. Yeah. The first time I saw Representative Foss clap during your Tuesday night address was when you acknowledged the bipartisan work that went into the shared revenue um, increase agreement. What do you yeah. attribute to that piece of bipartisanship? Well, you know, during the when I was running for election, I spent every day talking about shared revenue to just a whole bunch of people all across the state and so people understood by the time we got to the point of <laughs> negotiating it uh, people of wisconsin was, were demanding it 
you know, mm-hmm. our local governments do all the hard work. We wanted to make sure they finally got the uh, resources they needed to uh, to do that hard work, whether it's police, fire, a public libraries, mm-hmm. you name it. So uh, it was something that uh, everybody was for to just kind of get through the, the, the details. Let's go into that just a little bit more deeply. Um, I remember you campaigning on shared revenue, but it's complicated. Um, uh, talk about how uh, this increase in shared revenue translate to, oh, oh let's pick a mid-sized local community, uh, a city like Wausau. How specifically will people there experience the fruits of this shared revenue increase? Yeah, well, that's a good, that's a good example in Wausau. They, they have lots of issues around PFAS and uh, other water-related situations. Uh, 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 you know that part of their their work, and this this money will help them address that. It, it's also going to help them address, uh, you know, the, how many hours the public library is open. Just just the basics mm-hmm. of, of Wausau or any other uh, any other city. But you know, Wausau has struggled with PFAS and and water, and this this will help them address that. Ostensibly, uh, shared revenue also has a flow to. School districts, and in his rebuttal, Tuesday night, Senate Majority Leader Lemayhu uh, took a, a swipe at your administration's overall spending, and he made a specific comment about increased school spending. Jim Wilson, if that twenty-second clip is ready, let's listen to that and then have the governor respond. Sure. Today, Governor Ebers highlighted a vision for the state that does not align with the reality of the state's financial picture. State spending is at an all-time high. Over this two-year budget cycle, Wisconsin state government will spend almost $44,000 per income taxpayer. Our K-12 schools are enjoying the highest level of funding in history. Local governments and the school choice program have recently gotten their largest increase in state support ever. Senate Majority Leader uh, Devin LeMahieu in his uh, rebuttal to Tuesday night's um, address, uh, audio courtesy of PBS Wisconsin. Governor Evers, what about those claims? Well, they, we did provide a, a significant increase, over a billion dollars, and uh, so I, you know, he's he's right that we prioritize it. Uh, members of his caucus uh, actually supported that, but at the end of the day, we still have a situation with our public schools that they are, you know, we, we're we're working from some really long history of uh, underfunding, and so we made a good move forward, but we. We did not, you know, especially issues around special education, mental health for kids. You know, did did we have some large increases there? Yes, but not nearly enough. Have have has um, spending on schools caught up to pre-Walker cut levels? No, not not if you t- take all of the factors and you know time and inflation since then. So no, I mean that was that was a huge. Uh, yeah, a huge downer for our schools, and we're still working to, re- to I, replace that revenue. I think it's important to, to point that out, um, that given that when you hear the words largest spending cuts ever, you may as well add the words, um, or sp- largest spending ever, you may as well add the words um, since before the Walker era, if, if that's yeah. accurate. Yeah, yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers. Um, a quick pivot now, Governor Evers. Um, you, you mentioned redistricting in your Tuesday night speech, and, and news broke after the state of the state on that topic. As you know, the Assembly sent you maps midweek that they say make a quote-unquote minuscule changes to your version. You reject them. I, I think we know where the parties are coming from, more or less, with new maps. But what do you believe the, the state Supreme Court, who, who expects to review maps in March, will be looking for? 
Well, they'll be looking for fairness. And, uh, you know, from my vantage point, they'll be looking at the same thing I'm, I'm concerned about. That's having fair maps. Uh, we, uh, we are a purple state. We, we have our, our breakdown of the legislature is nowhere near uh, that, uh, that reality. And so, no, I anticipate that they will they'll focus on the, the important things that, that uh, people have been concerned about for several years. You, you, you may have just answered this uh, just a moment ago. Uh, we, we've talked a lot on this program about redistricting, um, but I'm still confused about um, exactly what the court's power is. Can they draw their own versions? Yes. Hmm. Yes, they can. And uh, they, they have all sorts of options. Obviously, <laughs> obviously the ones that were provided to them, but... Uh, they also have two experts that uh, will be reviewing them and providing advice to them. Yeah, they could they could do their own, but there's there's lots of uh, lots of brain power there already. <laughs> okay, let's move on with uh, taxes. Uh, Tuesday afternoon, just a few hours before your state of the state, the Republicans reintroduced tax cuts you rejected uh, last November. Cuts that are essentially paid for with the existing state surplus, which, if I'm not mistaken, is projected about four billion dollars. This time, rather than one big bill, they broke it down into pieces. And, and I want to ask you about the, spe- the specific piece that is their proposed child care tax credit that would grow the amount of eligible expenses for a single dependent from 3000 to $10,000. That sounds pretty good. And, and, and it looks like a standalone bill, if, if, if I'm right about that. Is that something you can support? Well, let's, let's put it this way. Uh, until I see those final bills, I, I, I'm not going to be making any judgments mm-hmm. but yeah yes uh, it, to put it bluntly i i have supported uh, uh, making sure that child care is uh, is affordable for people in the state of wisconsin we we it's it's a, it's actually a workforce thing and it, you know first of all we want to have highly skilled highly uh you know a really good system of ch- early childhood and uh i've been talking about that a lot this is the 30 these 30 childhood op- operators uh, over the last couple of months and they're hurting and they're about you know many of them are about to go out to business and so I my 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 work my in my world I think we should be providing resources directly to them they're the ones that know best how to you know lower, keep the rates lower so I'll, I'll take a look at the bill the same problem with uh, uh, tax credits and something like that. That's a once once a year thing. Yeah, and, I forgot uh, about pe- that. People people don't recognize it mm-hmm. until they get it, and they have to pay the they have to pay the bills to the child care providers every every week every month. And so it's 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 something, but I I'm not going to get behind it or oppose it until I see it. I I forgot about the, the tax credit. It's a one trick pony, and um, it's it's right. sort of a significant part of that. Governor Evers, women's health care and contraception. Um, you announced your intention to direct the State Department of Health Services to make contraception and emergency contraception available for those using Badger Care plus health insurance. It'll allow women to obtain medication of this sort without a prescription from a doctor and at, at no out-of-pocket cost. Is this like an executive order? How, how will it work and, and on what timeline? Well, we'll do that as quickly as possible, but the uh, it'll work this way: is that uh, it, these these will be uh, at the at the at the pharmacy. They will be on the, on the shelf. They're they're not prescription, and uh, people that are on Badger Care will be able to pick it up and take it to the front desk at the pharmacy, and 
and they will be able to get it for for free. And and so it, it's it's real simple. There there there's some new products coming out that, that we we anticipate will be approved uh, for um, a non-prescription. So something that's really important as part of reproductive freedom in the state of Wisconsin, and we're looking forward to this. Governor Tony Evers, thank you for joining us on the Friday Buzz, and stay safe out there on the foggy road. Okay, take care, Andy. Okay, Bye-bye. thank you. That was WORT's Andy Moore in conversation with Governor Tony Evers last Friday on the 8 o'clock Buzz. You can find their full conversation at wortfm.org. And it is time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we had better luck with the sun this week than I was expecting. We managed to get a good uh, three or four hours in a row midday on Monday, right after I made my Monday forecast. Uh, That was a delight, even if I had just predicted cloud cover for the rest of the day. And once again today, southwesterly winds coming across what is uh, now nearly a snowless ground out in northeastern and central Iowa. Those winds were able to mix just deeply enough into the dry, warm inversion up overhead to evaporate the moisture that's been almost endemic in the lowest thousand feet or so over these last couple of weeks. Today's stretch of clear sky also allowed the thermometer to reach 40 degrees for only the second time this year. Uh, The first was actually yesterday during a brief parting of the heavy overcast that occurred around noon. Otherwise, as warm as we've been through much of January, we actually haven't been quite able to bust out of the 30s, and we can probably lay that down to the snowpack by and large. Uh, In any case, though, the month is going to go into the books about three and a half degrees above normal, the way it appears, when that closes out at midnight tonight. What kind of sky cover we're going to be seeing over the coming days is probably the most difficult aspect of the forecast this evening. I'm going to stick with my prediction from Monday, basically, that we're going to see uh, largely go back under the cloud cover once our southwesterly winds veer more north and northeast behind a co-frontal passage tomorrow morning. If you have a look at the water vapor image of North America from the GOES East satellite that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening, You'll see, uh, well, a slightly chaotic tableau there, given the amount of mixing going on uh, in the very meridional environment in the upper air across the continent currently. Uh, But you can make out there a a tall upper ridge from about the west coast uh, eastward across most of northwest Canada over to about western Hudson's Bay with an equally deep upper trough to the uh, east of there. Uh, We're positioned near the dividing line between the ridge in the trough, so while we're going to spend a fair amount of time over coming days with northerly or northeasterly winds coming off of the surface air masses that will be passing to our east, the temperatures aloft under the ridge to our west, uh, even just very shortly aloft, just a couple or 3,000 feet above us, will continue to be anomalously warm and uh, thus keep our temperatures way over where they should be in early February, especially if we got uh, northerly or northeasterly winds in place. If you have a look at the, uh, or if you have the water vapor up image up in front of you, you can see what is uh, kind of basically the latest in uh, what has been a series of low pressure swirls descending off of that upper ridge to our west. This latest one sliding east-southeastward currently across central Ontario, just south of James Bay. That's the circulation which will be sending its cold front past us later tonight, or actually early tomorrow morning. 
Uh, very little moisture with that system, given its uh, trajectory across the northern end of the continent. So a uh, little more than uh, increasing cloud cover, perhaps, is expected here with the frontal passage. And given the amplitude and the blockiness of the overall upper air pattern in place over North America, not much motion either eastward or westward is expected in that overall pattern through the coming uh, maybe week, at least several days. So that means we'll remain in a position basically on the downstream side of an upper ridge. So that's generally a subsident place to be with downward motions in the air. Uh, and a spot in which we can expect then uh, little in the way of storminess or precipitation. So another uh, quite uneventful forecast period coming up. And little possibility of, I think, any significant cooling until uh, perhaps out in at least the second week or perhaps out in mid-month uh, of February. Anyway, back to tonight, the clouds will generally be on the increase as we go through the night. Uh, perhaps some uh, just mid-level clouds first, then the lower clouds filling in later on. Temperatures will hold in the mid-30s on southwesterly winds of 8 to 12 miles per hour, veering more uh, west and northwest towards morning. Tomorrow, once again, uh, like Monday, I'm going to go with the high-resolution forecast models that show us holding uh, mostly overcast under low cloud cover through much of the day. Temperatures will still reach the upper uh, 30s to perhaps 40 degrees on northwesterly winds veering uh, north and northeast at 5 to 10 miles per hour through the day. Breaking and lifting is possible at times tomorrow because, again, the uh, cloud deck above us should be fairly thin. Uh, the overnight uh, should also continue mostly cloudy with a low temperature uh, around 30, perhaps in the upper 20s. Friday is kind of a rinse and repeat, at least to start with. We may see some clearing uh, later in the day, this time perhaps from north to south or northeast to southwest across the state as drier air and slightly stronger high pressure nose in from uh, Ontario and Quebec. Temperatures will reach the upper 30s on northeast to east winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Will likely stay cloudy overnight into Saturday with a low temperature around 30. And Saturday, if we can keep the clouds at bay, we may return to 40 or perhaps even the low 40s as winds veer slightly more southeasterly at 5 to 10 miles per hour. And Sunday, again, looks uh, quite similar, 40-ish uh, and uh, hopefully partly sunny that day as well. The temperature currently down here on the station on Bedford Street is 38 degrees. The dew point temperature is 31. Winds are uh, light southwesterly at uh, 5 miles per hour, uh, basically clear over the station at the moment. Winds are, uh, are uh, excuse me, the barometer is uh, holding fairly steady over the past few hours at 29.98 inches of mercury. We go now to February 1962 for news about civil rights, the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Project, and urban renewal. Stu Levitan has the headlines from 62 years ago on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, February 1962. Attorney Lloyd Barbie, the former president of the Madison NAACP, now leading the statewide organization, 
releases the draft of a tough new human rights ordinance that would ban bias in housing, employment, and public accommodations on the basis of race, color, creed, ancestry, or national origin. The draft, endorsed by the local NAACP, now led by Odell Taliaferro, provides a maximum fine of $200 or 30 days in jail for violations. It would replace the current 16-member Mayor's Commission on Human Rights, which Barbie chairs, with a nine-member commission with a full-time director. Like the current commission, the new body would attempt to resolve any complaints through conciliation and persuasion, but would also have the new power to order hearings, decide complaints, and issue remedial orders which the city attorney would enforce. The draft declares the right of all persons to live in decent housing and explains that the ordinance is necessary because so many people were forced to live in, quote, unhealthy, unsanitary, and crowded living conditions because of discrimination and segregation in housing. It would apply to property owners, real estate brokers and agents, and financial institutions, and cover the sale, lease, rental, or financing of real estate. The proposal is referred to the Mayor's Commission. In the ongoing fight over the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace, Mayor Henry Reynolds is the clear winner of the latest round as he bends the Common Council to his will over the wording of the referendum on the project's future. The ambitious auditorium and civic center has been in limbo since construction bids in early 1961 were more than $8 million over the $4 million budget, which had been set by referendum in 1954. Hoping to get the project back on track, supporters had sought a new referendum in November 1961, but Reynolds vetoed it. Now they want to try again this April on the question, quote, Shall the city of Madison redraft the present plans and specifications and proceed to construct an auditorium and civic center at the Monona Terrace site? But Reynolds says it's intellectually dishonest not to include the price tag in the question, and he threatens to veto the referendum resolution. He wants the question as it's framed by the citizen group opposing the project, the Citizens Realistic Auditorium Association, where he had been vice president before getting elected in April 1961. Their question asks, quote, Shall the city of Madison terminate all plans for an auditorium and civic center at the Monona Terrace site at the end of Monona Avenue and in the Law Park and immediately take steps to select an alternative site for the auditorium and civic center? It's very clever language. Not only does it force supporters to explain that to vote for Monona Terrace, you have to vote against the referendum, but it also lets Monona Terrace opponents piggyback on the popular and very expensive $9.3 million school bond issue with vote yes on both referenda campaign ads. The pro-project language wins a close preliminary vote 12 to 10, but supporters know they can't override the veto Reynolds vows. Some alders accuse him of being a dictator and destroying democracy, but they ultimately yield and adopt the language he wants, 16 to 6. Both sides gird for battle. A double dose of good news in urban renewal. The Madison Housing Authority gets an initial okay from the Federal Public Housing Administration for 160 units of public housing, including a 60-unit project on Regent Street for elderly residents of the Greenbush neighborhood, whose houses the Madison Redevelopment Authority has just started knocking down for the Triangle Project. 
There will also be units for low-income households in South Madison, at Truex Field, and on Webb Avenue. And Zachary Trotter finally has a new home and place for his bar and grill. His tuxedo cafe has been in the way of the MRA's Brittingham project on the south side of West Washington Avenue, and the project could not proceed until Trotter could transfer the license for Madison's only black-owned bar to another location, which proved hard to do. His first two attempts for a new Southside site were turned down by the council due to heavy neighborhood opposition. He's finally able to build a two-story bar and apartments at 1616 Bell Street, which he opens on February 2nd as Trotters. A few days later, the MRA tears his old building down. On campus, the Daily Cardinal Board of Control names philosophy major Jeff Greenfield its new editor-in-chief the first sophomore to hold the position in the paper's 69-year history. The New York City native is also vice president of the campus chapter of the liberal Americans for Democratic Action, on the UW debate team, and on the staff of the Wisconsin Review, activities he is resigning to assume his new duties. Just a few weeks into the job, the 18-year-old pens an editorial welcoming Nation of Islam minister Malcolm X to campus, which takes white liberals to task for being shocked at the growing movement of black separatism. We of the white race should not be too surprised at this reaction to 300 years of subjugation, he writes, adding, quote, Our task is no longer to spread enlightenment. Rather, the burden is guilt, guilt for three centuries of inhumanity and exploitation of a race. Our burden is to shoulder that guilt and to set about ending that exploitation now. The time is now for a frontal assault on racial discrimination. Men's minds cannot be changed overnight, but legal barriers and discrimination can be eliminated. Ironically, Malcolm X doesn't make it to campus due to what he laughingly calls white power, a heavy snowstorm that prevents him flying up from Chicago. But even without the Muslim minister, there's heavy intellectual firepower on campus at the third annual WSA Symposium, featuring Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dr. Ralph Bunch, Harlem Congressman the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, Pulitzer Prize-winning editorial cartoonist Herbert Herblock Block, and a debate between liberal U.S. Senator Eugene McCarthy and conservative Russell Kirk. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported, intellectually curious WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Your headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore and Stu Levitan. Katie Georgella is our on-air engineer. Faye Parks produced the newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.